like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. We're just going to take it nice and easy tonight. It feels like one of those Feels like we have plenty of time to do whatever we want without the pressure of all those people back there. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossip! Fucking Cameron in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast and today we have a pretty important episode it's a show that has been just revered in pearl jam lore it's cataway 2000 and the reason why we're doing it today is because you voted on it we did a little fan choice poll on both twitter and facebook and it was like a three-month-long ordeal where we were asking people, what's your favorite show from this year? What's your favorite show from this year? And then we broke it down to four of every year, had people vote on those, and then we broke it down into other March Madness kind of brackets and broke it down more. And what we ended up with was one of the best shows of the binaural tour era. This is going to be a really fun one to break down. There's a lot of great stories from it. There's a lot of great performances from it. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the bootleg of this that obviously was part of the official bootlegs. It was one of the biggest and most collected bootleg of the official series when it first came out. We'll also talk about the eight-man series, which which Pearl Jam dedicated to, I believe, 18 different shows to be as the highest regarded shows. But before we're going to do that, we're going to talk a little bit about the ticket situation that's happening on Ticketmaster right now. Let's introduce us. Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. Yo, so let's get Ticketmaster out of the way because I don't want it to linger and I don't want it to make us too angry because it is kind of an ugly situation so the premium tickets went on sale last week and i know every time that we come on and do this we're kind of reacting a little bit late but that's just what we're doing and it's still an ongoing thing it's still an ongoing process if you signed up for verified fan and you got into the verified fan then you notice that going in for premium tickets there were not a lot of face value tickets that were available some of them that you might have seen were probably in the nosebleeds or behind the stage or something like that 
And then if you were trying to get more of a normal ticket in a lower bowl or a mid-tier bowl, you would have seen that ticket be anywhere upwards of $2,000, $3,000 if it's, you know, the New York show or the Toronto show maybe. And the lower price would be somewhere in between like $450 and $600 if it was like a Sacramento or a Fresno or an Oakland show. So these prices, no matter how you cut it, they're ridiculous. And it's not really what we were promised in the beginning in 2020. The whole idea of the fan to fan was that people would be able to trade with one another. And, and honestly, it's not even trade with one another. You put it up and somebody sees it available, grabs it, and you get the money for it. It's not like you can just connect with your friend and trade through Ticketmaster services. That that That's not available, I don't think. I don't even know when the fan to fan will be available. Maybe by the time this podcast is out, it will be. But it all seems a little ridiculous. It all seems like it's profiting, obviously, the, the mega corporation and honestly, a little bit of the band too. And it's hurting the consumer and the fan who have been really aching for these shows for two years. And a lot of people didn't get into these shows on the initial pass in 2020 had to wait two years and thankfully some tickets became available. And then to find out that the best they could do was this, it's pretty deflating. You know, I, I wish that we could take this information, get in the time machine, go back to 1994, 1995, and just show that to the band and be like, look, this is what happened. This is what you're doing now. I wonder what the response would be because it went all the way basically to the Supreme Court. Jeff and Stone had to go testify 1995, 1994 in front of Congress about the Ticketmaster monopoly, and they lost. And no one else supported them, and they tried to do it without Ticketmaster, and they, they couldn't. This is the end result of that, that now you have branded PJ Premium tickets on Ticketmaster for hundreds, and if not thousand percents above the original face value. It's just kind of sad. Yeah, there's no other way around it. And for a band that forever, even being on Ticketmaster, not being on Ticketmaster, they valued the fact that they wanted their fans to get in for a fair price. And when you got the 10 club tickets, you might have noticed that anywhere in the building, it was the same price, whether it was a 2020 show where it was $103 a ticket, you could be in GA or you can be up in the nosebleeds. It'd be the same amount or a brand new show that was announced like a Vegas or Sacramento that the price went up a little bit, which obviously inflation and obviously pandemic inflation is a little bit more than regular inflation. And those were $133 a ticket. So Yeah, I think the whole thing is just disappointing to see, and I hope somebody is recognizing this and seeing that it needs to go into a different direction the next time that they do this, because the people that are suffering the most are us. We're suffering the most. However, the people on the other side are all majorly profiting from this. The reason why the band is okay with this. And I don't want to say that they're okay with this, but there's a difference between this and scalping because regular scalping street scalping or StubHub scalping, whatever you want to say, none of that profits the band. None of those proceeds go to the band at all. 
But when Ticketmaster does it, there's a cut involved. So that's sort of the process going on here. And it's obviously unfair. It's obviously not benefiting anybody that's a pretty standard middle class Pearl Jam fan that has a family. For some people, they're taking a lot out of their savings to just visit to one place and go to one or, or even two shows. That takes a lot out of people. So, yeah, it's, it's disappointing to see it all happen. I just want to bring this up because a lot of people have asked around about what the workaround is for all of this. And it's, it's ugly. It's really ugly. So, obviously, don't know what's going on with the fan-to-fan. However, if you have tickets and you want to get rid of those tickets, then the best way to do it, obviously, you'd have to accept payment on either PayPal or Venmo when it comes time for the show to begin, if you're at the show that you're selling the tickets for, then you have to bring that person in with you and scan them in. That seems easy enough. However, if you're not going to the show, the only way you could really do it is give your Ticketmaster information out. And I would suggest that if you are doing that, obviously change your login, change your password, and make it something really generic so they can log in and scan and then hopefully get in touch with you. There's got to be an honor system here. And five minutes after they scan it, you can change your password back to, to your normal proceeding. So I, it's, I personally would not do that. Like be very careful. It sucks. I do not do that. If you don't, that's a last resort. I would, I would think, but honestly, for a lot of people, it's the only resort. Mm. If you, if you cannot make, a show in California that you were planning to go to in 2020, then you have nothing else that you could do right now until the fan to fan shows up. Yeah. Which, well, have, yeah. You're, again, you're, don't you're know all your, you're putting all your eggs in that fan to fan basket. We'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, right. And uh, yeah, there's so many circumstances here that are just ugly. And again, I think this is the point where we kind of have to cut it off because it can just spiral way more than yeah. we wanted to. But so again, it's just surprising because after the earthling shows, those tickets being so expensive kind of came back to bite them in the ass a little bit. It really and did. One of those shows are sold out. So you think they would have learned like, I mean, again, your, your power as a consumer, the only thing you can do is just not buy the tickets. So, you know, I'm sure we don't have to tell the people listening to this, but that's how you can change things is just don't buy those $1,500, $2,000 tickets. And I, I hope don't, that no one else does. I don't expect anybody that listens to our program even sniffing that. So, yeah, if that's the best you can do, then hopefully that starts the change. And the only thing that is ever going to speak out to corporate America is when they don't profit. So there you go. There you have it. We can extend this conversation at another time, but I think we're finished for now because we really want to talk about Katowice. So... This is one of the most unusual and popular shows of the earliest era of the official bootlegs. The first grouping of official bootlegs came out right before, I believe, the second leg of the binaural tour, and it was all of the European tour shows. So you get from the London, the Cardiff, the Scotland shows that they were playing really early on, to there was a a good show in Prague, a Verona show. Basically, what was being promoted as the cream of the crop show was this. And when you're looking at this at a 2000 standpoint, obviously the stories, but you go down the list of songs and a lot of those are not songs that were very common to hear at all, especially in one sitting in one show in this era. 
Yeah, I think a lot of that, when those bootlegs came out, it was a lot of like looking at the track listing and looking at Five Horizons and looking to see which ones you wanted. And the story for this one got out, being that it was kind of a makeup show and not a lot of people there. The band was changing things out. Like I said, a lot of different songs being played, a lot of songs that you weren't getting on any of these other bootlegs, all in one show. So this was one that I think people immediately went like, oh, yeah, I want that one because I want to hear all. And it's a, it's one of the longer shows. A lot of people went to it and were like, oh, yep, I want that one. And a lot of these bootlegs, after their first mass production, a lot of these bootlegs, you know, if if it was a show in, let's say, Michigan, it was only produced and put out in Michigan, I believe, like Best Buys and places like that. It was It would only be in that state. But there were some that continued mass production, and this was one of the ones that you'd have to think would have had the most pieces available to it. Yeah, I remember. I think most. I remember most of them being available. Sure, at, at first, yeah. but I think after a while, maybe going into 2003, you know, obviously 2003 becomes kind of more relevant, and but you would still see the popular ones like Katowice, like Key Arena, like Vegas, all still pop up, and all those shows part of the eight man series. Do you want to explain what the eight man series is for anybody that doesn't know? Yeah. So it's a series of shows and this wasn't like, I don't even think it was really promoted. Even you would see these and they would have this logo, like kind of stamped on the back with an ape and like then a line and then a a man. And they were kind of like almost holding hands or something. I, I remember, but it kind of came out that like, these are shows that the band picked that they thought were, special for like one reason or the other like maybe a great crowd maybe great performances so it's almost like a curated kind of thing right like here's one that the band thought was great so like that makes it cool and that makes it special because they went back and listened to all of these and decided that i think it was there were what 72 of them total and only 18 eight man shows so one out of every one out of every four yeah. And looking at the list, like it's a pretty good list of shows. You, there there are a few from this European run. You've got London, Cardiff, Paris, this one, Verona, and Milan. And then from first leg you got Atlanta, Tampa, Columbus, two Jones Beach shows, and Mansfield. And then you've got Auburn Hills, Rosemont, Las Vegas, San Diego, Boise, and then the last show in Seattle. And like that's pretty much a cream of the crop like they did a good job of of picking those you know they took the time to like think about it and be like okay these are the ones that we want to mark as special it it was such a cool way to do it because it wasn't even like here like buy these we think these it's just like a little thing like these these are cool if you if you see this this, you'll know that that's that's something cool right yeah and then a lot of the songs from those shows also ended up being on touring band 2000 sure so no surprise Right, yeah, of course. So let's kind of talk about why this show was so popular. Obviously, the story here, they played on June 15th. They played Katowice, Poland in the same venue. 8,000 people sold out. And the next day, which is 6-16, June 16th, where they were supposed to go to Budapest, Hungary. That didn't happen. That show got canceled. And they were able to configure a way where they were able to go back to the arena that they played the night before. Fans were still able to get in if they had the ticket stub from the prior night, and they were able to get in for half price that night. 
out of the 8,000 people that showed up on the 15th, 3,000 people showed up on the 16th. And because you got to think right here, a full crowd, a full night, they're probably riding pretty high from that show or, you know, at least feeling pretty good about the whole tour because at, at that point the tour was going really well. And then you got to think when they come on stage, they see a completely different atmosphere than what they did the prior night. So I think Ed says it right from the start. He's like, hey, we got the place all to ourselves. And it was really a shock. And we'll get into kind of that story in a second. But it was a different setting for them. You know, go anywhere. You know, you can go to a baseball game two nights in a row and say you go, and I've done this before, say you go on opening day to a baseball game and it's packed. It's 35,000 people, what have you. And then the next day, because it's an April game in New York or Boston or wherever on the East Coast, there's like 5,000 people there. It's a completely different atmosphere because nobody actually wants to be at a baseball game in April. They just go to opening day because it's a special event, but the next day is not a special. It's, It's a cold April game, so they won't do it. So that's right there. That's the equivalent to what Pearl Jam's going through. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too because it's just another cool thing about this band. Like, how many bands would would go out there and seen that and gotten pissed off and like played a short set? Like, oh, screw this! Like, this place isn't even half full. Like, nope, they do the opposite. They're like, okay, we're gonna relax and do some stuff we don't normally do, and we're gonna make this special for these people. And that's part of the lore of this band, and that's what makes them special. And we say every time that we do a 94 or 93 show where they're in a more intimate venue like a theater, think of like Orpheum Theater kind of place and how popular that show was, they always feel like when there's less people, it could be more intimate and they could do something more special and something more memorable from that night. And sometimes you get big arena stuff where they'll fill out Madison Square Garden or Philadelphia or what have you. Those shows will be great. But sometimes you get a very intimate setting like this, or maybe even a Moline that only held, what, like 10,000, 11,000 people. Different atmosphere. And they end up saying, you know what? This is the place that we're going to do something really good. And that's what happened here. For anybody wondering, we do not have the answer to this. We do not know what happened to cause the cancellation for Budapest. However, I got in touch with the source. The source didn't know. The source is asking around. If I get that information, it'll be shared on the next episode or at some point in the future. So I'm just putting that out there right now because I find it interesting. I think, John, you find it interesting, too. It's part of the story here. We're just looking for the pieces and the why is always very relevant. So, all right. I think we need to address right here that there is an original set list to this. And what the original set list was, was not what they went by at all. The whole entire show was done by feel. And I think as we go into it, we'll kind of evolve and explain all of that as it goes. But from the back-to-back nights, too, from the 15th, there were only seven songs played at back-to-back nights. So this is still, for anybody that was at both shows, this is still pretty fresh for them. Jeff even says about the set list, he's in the PJ20 book, if you go to page 225, everyone. Jeff says, we came out with a set list, and the set list was definitely a lot different than anything we'd done on the tour. And that's, he's talking about the original one. Pretty much right at the beginning, we just said, let's relax and do whatever comes to mind. 
That was a musical highlight for me live, just taking all the pressure off of being an entertainer and just going up and playing songs like you're in your living room. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of talk about how things changed from that original list to what, what it ended up as. And then Matt comes out and says in the book here, he says, Eddie just decided to call songs out. There was no set list or anything. It was kind of like playing a kegger. So that's kind of the vibe that, that we're going into this show with. I like it, and I think that's why it's kind of turned into a magical night and a magical moment, and I think that's why a lot of people attach themselves to it, too. It's it's not that it's just, like, rare songs, but it's songs that are out of place. It's songs that kind of intrigue you, and especially the first four right off the bat, something they weren't doing at the time that we're more familiar with now, the slow burn, but here it's so unique because after release, there are three binaural slow burn songs in a row five binaural songs in a row for the first six in total yeah. so we have to start with release though because again as ed says going into this hey we got the place all to ourselves first verse in favor of getting to the second one right away and i don't know if that was a purposeful thing if it was a happy accident but whatever happened ed noticed what he did and he kept rolling with it and the band kept rolling with it and it kind of what it did and release kind of gets that slow burn aspect at times where it's like okay that first verse is just kind of calming you into the build and then steadily rising as it goes and this was just like fuck the steadiness let's hit you with the hard parts and let's just roll until the end and that's a very unique aspect of the song that i don't think you get any other time yeah releases and in, in five horizons it says that that ed fucks up the lyrics and starts up but that's interesting that you think it might be intentional that would be kind of cool um, happy accident you yeah, never know yeah but this is uh this is an interesting release it's very subdued mike is almost absent the whole time i don't know what he's doing because we do have a video from this but it doesn't start until later it felt like it was very sparse and and very subdued and maybe a lot of that is you're hearing a half full 
arena as well. Like there's a lot of space in this. A lot of times when you would hear a big crowd, there isn't one. Reminiscent of those Japanese shows in that sense a little bit. Mike's being very quiet. Like again for Five Horizons, it says he was tired and introverted during the first few songs. So I don't know like if he just wasn't kind of into this at first. Like he was maybe a little bummed out that they were playing for a half empty place and like took him a while to get into it. But yeah, just a weird vibe here. Ed loves it, I'm sure. He loves anything's like, yeah, let's play for less people. That's great. Some other people in the band, maybe not so much. Spin it positively for a second and just make you kind of think off that aspect that maybe Mike was like, okay, it's kind of empty here. What if I do a little bit less? And again, the Five Horizons report says that he seemed a little sleepy, a little tired. And Mike in 2000... You know, the, there's a couple different sides sure. of Mike in 2000, sure. so you just don't know what's there in his mind. But maybe this was purposeful because you're going to yeah. listen and of the girl, and there's going to be moments where it does feel sparse that he just lets the atmosphere sort of take it with him. And one other point that I want to make off of something else that you said that it felt quiet, and a lot of these first songs do feel quiet. You usually get that big surge and big rise with the crowd, especially with a release. And this is just like, almost like if it were a Benaroya Hall show, where the crowd is just waiting and and they're waiting for that moment kind of at the end of the song. And the crowd would progress into getting louder and louder as this went on, as the band did. So everybody's starting off with a slow burn here. It's kind of like the band read the room, the crowd read the room, and all worked in unison together to get them there. Let's hit up the first three binaural slow burns, which is Of the Girl, Sleight of Hand, and Thin Air. So overall, it's going to be a stretch of five binaural songs, which will come right afterwards as well. This is elusive for them. This is almost unheard of for the time. There were a couple shows, I guess in like 95, obviously you think of Red Rocks and you think of, uh, well, The Gorge came later, but I think Red Rocks and maybe one other show were it that defined this kind of style but then this comes back and especially it it seems so much more rare now because these songs you almost never get in a set list of the girl right off the top when we're talking performance wise it just has this stomp to it and you can hear the crowd just like clapping along and that's like the the first indication that this is going to be a pretty good matt cameron song you don't think of like the bass drum aspect in this but like this is just pumping energy it's pumping things up while mike is not doing these crazy maneuvers and and working with major pedal effects like he does on normal versions of of the girl like he still has some stuff going on he's still working with it and he's still almost kind of transferring the energy that might be a little slow to pick up and filling in those little gaps and that's why you don't see it kind of evolve into something bigger it's just a milder blues song of the girl i think builds off of release in that they kind of figured out what this was and i think that throwing the set list out the window right from the beginning can do some different things it can either be like like jeff said it can be really relaxing it can be fresh air like hey we're just this is just like rehearsal we're just kind of loose and having fun or it can be a little nerve-wracking like oh now i don't know what's gonna come up like i need to get in my flow and i don't know what's coming up so it can throw you off a little bit but i think by of the girl they were starting to figure out what this was going to be and i think release is a little tense and a little like we don't really know what this is 
but I think Of The Girl is a little more relaxed and you hear Mike in the intro doing some extra stuff and the ending is very cool and kind of extended and they're kind of like okay we're just going to play around here and see what happens so yeah this is one of the highlights here at the beginning and yeah I love Sleight of Hand one of my favorite performances from this show we'll get to that in two seconds because I agree with you wholeheartedly if you're following on the original set list release this was very traditional release into Animal into Hell Hell like Mm -hmm. that's like hit you in the face good Pearl Jam this is a couple of new ones that are off the beaten path and then ease you in and build you into everything else. So Ed, before sleight of hand, says we're just going to take it nice and easy tonight. It feels like one of those things. It feels like we have all the time to do whatever we want without the pressure of all those people back there. Then someone gives him a bouquet of flowers. Ed jokes that they're from a guy and he'll see him after the show. Sleight of hand in the number three spot. It's the number two time that it's ever been played live. The first time that they played it was a show that I believe we covered when we did our Around the World series and and the Prague show that was two days before this. So in that show, they opened the encore with it. In this, they're playing it at the front of their set. It might have been because you have to think of what happened with Binaural, what they were doing with it. It didn't get debuted at Mount Baker. So they were waiting on it. They must have not felt that they either had it down or they knew where it belonged in the set. The original set has it kind of in the middle here, like in between what looks like black or what could have been a replacement for black and faithful and corduroy at like the seven or eight spot. So in the three is really intriguing to me. And I think that part of this performance's power comes from the build from of the girl and just how this was all evolving. we had the visual of this of him picking the flower petals off as he's singing off of that that bouquet of flowers just perfect for the thing and then just again only the second time playing the song like that's incredible 
I think, again, the show, they're relaxing more. They're getting it figured out. And it gets to a really nice place here in the beginning. And, oh, and it's going to last for a long time here. It just gets more and more just a nice, easy vibe to the show. We've done so many that are angry and, like, tense. And those are great in their own right. But this is just a different thing where it's almost like you're peeking into their rehearsal space to see, like, oh, this is this is what they're like. Kind of like, like Jeff said, when the pressure's off and they can just play what they want to play when they want to play it. It leads to some very good performances, and Sleight of Hand is one, another criminally underplayed song that should have been played two or three times more than it has been, but you got this new record. I mean, Binaural had been out for, what, a month? And, yeah, uh, a little yeah, over, sure. Yeah. A little less, a little, yeah, give or take. So, yeah, they love these new songs. They're excited to play them, and, like, here's a chance to do something that, that you're not going to get a chance to do. My favorite part about Sleight of Hand in this version is unintentional because it's actually a lyric in Sleight of Hand that defines this whole entire show. Not remembering the change, not recalling the plan. How else would you define Katowice? Like, is that not what the show is in a nutshell? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, again, pretty powerful here. A phenomenal highlight from the show. They read the room really well. And especially the chorus is just drive and lift. And that's when the song could get really good. Now, Ed is in between thin air here where he's saying we're going to get all the pretty ones out of the way. We have plenty of time to be angry. Maybe wait for a song or two. And thin air is going to round out the end cap of the slow burn tracks. There's some crowd participation here. That's pretty cool. A little clapping in the distance. And it's more of a sound of one hand clapping in comparison (laughs) to like a full building, which is a round of applause. So, but it's still very cool. And, and you do hear a fan in the background. It's, it's in the distance, but that's one of the cool things about the show is you're able to hear little voices here and there, especially Ed's at some point. And you can hear that, that voice in the distance, like screaming thin air. And you can hear those things. They're in the distance a little bit, but they're in the spaces within the song. That was something that you got in the 90s because, you know, we talk about that because it was someone with a Walkman or with a recorder. Right. And you could hear, like, conversations and stuff like that. We've talked about that a few times and we've done shows from 92 and all the, the early years. But you don't get that very often on an official bootleg where you can actually hear people talking. And, yeah, it's just another kind of unique thing about this show. So now Ed remarks, all right, I think we're ready. And now we're going to get into what are two of the best songs on Binaural and two of the best live songs that were evolving at the time. And that's Insignificance and Negrievance, which I've always felt were pretty similar in their content matter and similar in how the way the band goes about it, how Ed's like channeling anger and and frustration. And one of the things that caught me aback, I went to livefootsteps.org, which you should too, because it's a, a wonderful tool and a resource. And 
What I look for, if you use, there's a search tool, you go up to the top and you'll see the little magnifying glass and you'll be able to search for songs and you can search for two songs and see where they've been played consecutively in shows. This is something that I believe we worked on to get done with Dave. We, we helped him with this part, I think like a year or two ago. And the amount of times they were played back to back, do you have an answer for this? Can you guess this? Oh, I would probably say... 30. Well, Insignificance into Grievance was played four times. Okay, yeah, I'm way off on that. Mm-hmm, grievance into Insignificance has been played one time. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because these songs are so similar, you would think that, especially Insignificance into Grievance, because Grievance is the more bombastic one. It's the more sure, hard-hitting, sure. and Insignificance is the one that really ramps up and builds and gets super, super tense. And you would think that they would ride off that momentum and build that wave, but I don't know why they didn't. Maybe they felt the songs were a little too similar, that they needed more balance in spots, but I love these two back-to-back. It's just... Back to back bursts of anger and and just similar chord structure being Ed songs and oh, I, I I love this so much a lot of bite and probably the two songs that have the biggest bite off by Narl especially live at this point insignificance more calculated more building to the moment grievance is just right at you right from the beginning it makes for a fantastic section to get you in to the fast the, the hard stuff right from here. Yeah, thinking about it, like, you almost never see this. And, like, I should have taken a second to have thought about it before I blurted out my answer. But I'm surprised this didn't become more of, like, an early set thing. Because it fits really good right here after the little slow section. Like, yeah, I like these two together a lot. And I'm surprised they didn't go back to it more. is just the intensity of the don't give blood and take it back like that. Oh, yeah. it's so That's, good. Ed's in his element right here, especially at the end of Insignificance too. He's just like Yelp grunts the final lyrics and you know that he's jumping around and he's having a great time here.
vinaural section to begin this is now coming to a close. We'll get into more vinaural here and there as we go. There's tons of vinaural in this show. But now we're getting into four classics all in a row. Corduroy, Animal, Hail Hail, which Hail Hail and Animal were supposed to be the top two after release. And Corduroy somewhere in the middle. State of Love and Trust a little bit before Corduroy. And there's some maneuvering in where the original set list here. But all of these were originally on the set. Corduroy rips from the start, extremely tight and crisp performance. Seems like they knew what the deal was during the last discussion and they jump right into it right away. And we're going to be talking a lot about Matt being a highlight in this and hard hits and big fills. There are some really good fills in this. The last one right before they kind of take it down to build into the solo, there's an amazing fill right before that. And that's one of about 10 that I'll bring up. Yeah, that, like, I had that written down as well. You can even hear in between Corduroy and Animal, there's a little pause after that. You can hear what Ed says. It's somewhere along the lines of, oh, we got Hail Hail, we'll do Hail Hail. That's the part of calling out the songs on the fly, that they had no idea what they were doing. They're like, all right, Corduroy, what's next? All right, well, Animal and Hail Hail are pretty fast ones. We got to put them together. Why not? All right, let's do it. Hit them up, and the whole section was very hard-hitting and, and exactly what you want out of Pearl Jam. He changes that lyric in Hail Hail to refer to those in front again, and that's right. uh, gives a little different meaning behind it, knowing the show. He's, he's probably talking about everyone there. Right. Matt, once again, another highlight in Hail Hail, the same way that Jack oh. did on the intro, just, just right away, just getting you into it, hitting hard. And Ed putting his own flourish on the chorus as well. Like, ah, oh, another great fill in between the I can only be as good as you let me part. Mm-hmm. Right oh, on that bridge. Yes. Yeah. So good. It, it comes out of nowhere, and all of a sudden he's like, wow, Matt, all right. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. State of Love and Trust, you can hear a little bit of Mike working with some freeform maneuvering during the solo. Not something that you usually get. It was a little unusual, but very good. Yeah, State of Love and Trust, it almost looks like it would be the outlier here because you're doing all these kind of like rock songs. And then, yeah, State of Love and Trust is normally one that you would get, like be a big crowd one, save that for the end. But again, just calling them out. Here, here we go, State of Love and Trust. And I think it, it has a different feel to it following up after Hail, Hail and Animal in that section. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because on the original set list, we have the Animal Hail, Hail, Grievance and Insignificant section, which is actually believe it or not, Grievance into Insignificance instead of the opposite way, and then Daughter, and then State of Love and Trust. So that's essentially the same spot as they originally had. Yeah. State of Love and Trust after Daughter is completely different, because then you break it down and you're mm-hmm. that's a break, and like you're going to restart and you're going to build up the, the momentum again, but yeah, it's just a, just a different thing. Another thing that makes this show unique. Alright, so this is where the YouTube video starts at Evacuation, and the little section here would be Evacuation into Daughter into Jeremy. The YouTube video starts from a pretty far angle, but gets so much closer, and then you're hoping to like get a little inside discussion, which you see a little bit, but there's a lot of darkness on stage in between songs. So, yeah, you, you have to kind of make some estimations on things, but Evacuation, I was very surprised about the ending of Evacuation. It really starts to pick up a lot of power 
and it starts to get really fun and really good, which I don't say about Evacuation a lot, and I think a lot of people are sort of on the downstroke of that song that uh, I've heard a lot of people say that that's in the top ten of their least favorite songs. I've heard other things said about it. I've never really cared for it myself, but I think that when you have pieces that are all gelling, especially live like this, they don't do it like this now, but back then where they were more comfortable with the song, sounding very good. Yeah, I thought this was great. And like, of course, this is the time you want to get it, right? It's not going to sound the same in 2006 or 2008 or 2013, right? Because they've got some distance from it. But here, it might like, not even sound at all because they're exactly. probably not playing it. Exactly. I mean, yeah, there's probably a couple of times they didn't even get through it. But yeah, it sounds really good here. And another, just Matt Cameron, obviously his song. It's sort of odd to say because there are not a lot of Pearl Jam songs I just hate. But there are some that I don't pay much attention to. And, and it never finding its legs live probably isn't that, helped at that. It yeah. doesn't, no. You're absolutely right, it doesn't. So we get into Daughter. I think Daughter is a really good talking point here. You start from the beginning. Stone kind of does this like hesitation strumming on it. So the first little piece, you're just kind of hearing Ed sing like the first line or two sort of acapella with a little bit of drums in the background. You can hear the crowd a little bit probably due to the guitars not being so loud which was again like oh that's that's cool like people are stoked but yeah this is one you know, we're going to get into the tags here. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time because I like this song that we're going to get to that we never talk about. But the beginning of Daughter, and again, this is, like you said, it's a hit. So this crowd, like, hasn't had much to go on. They've, they've gotten a lot of deep cuts. They've gotten a lot of new songs and some rockers. And, like, Daughter is, like, it's the one that everybody knows from the radio. State of Love and Trust a little bit, but Daughter even more so. And it sounds really good. Again, this is a great head show counteract on that we have another great matt phil from this horse <laughs> to bridge transition classic like he's just i think he's going at it even harder than it usually does and i was going to leave this for later but i think that 2000 might be matt's best tour with the band oh well, i think yeah, it might be his best i don't even i don't think that's even that hot of a take i think probably yeah, like, probably not but i think that's yeah that's that's a good call he still had that edge that he was working with with 98, but like in 98, he was still trying to find his confidence with it. And 2000, he has the confidence. He still has the edge. 2003 and onward, like he still has a little bit of that, but I think he's sort of trying to play for the marathon instead of the sprint. And this he, he's he feels like he's able to play for the sprint. He's sort of still in Soundgarden mode, so... Let's talk about those tags now. The shades go down, tags go up, and Ed's wearing a gas mask. Apparently, he gets it from a crowd member with a little distorted voice, kind of that you hear sometimes, where he'll put his he'll put his hand over his like mouth a no- and like a nothing as it seems thing, a megaphone sh- thing. Yeah. Sure, yeah, and you get a little distorted voice that sounded good. The funky groove from Stone, Ed sort of doing this like echoey, reverberating singing as if he were kind of singing on a mountaintop. It sounded kind of cool, a little harmonious there. Then we get another brick in the wall, which has a pretty impassioned like moment on this where Ed really belts it out that teachers leave those kids alone line. 
Another brick in the wall was kind of like falling out of fashion at this point. They weren't doing it a lot around this time because, you know, after this, after 2000, after this tour, obviously It's Okay would start to creep in and, you you know, WMA never really fell out. But you didn't get another brick in the wall a lot after this. You know, it kind of was relegated to that second spot. But, yeah, sounds really good here. I mean, I always go back to Fox Theater for another brick in the wall. That's like the iconic one. So it always reminds me of that. Yep. And then it gets really quiet towards the end of this. You can hear a little bit of it, but you get a little bit of On a Rope, which was only tagged three times. It's very, very short. It's very brief. That's Rocket from the Crypt. And I love the album. Like It's from that Scream, Dracula Scream album from the mid-90s, which is great. I love the song. And I was hoping, you know, I think one of the other times maybe he goes off on a little more. I remember hearing one that was On a Rope, a On a Rope, more. On yeah. a Rope, On a Rope, yeah. yeah. Then this one's, yeah, very short, maybe just once or twice through. So there's a great crowd reaction after the song, probably one of the best reactions up until this point. And then we get the transition from Daughter and a Jeremy. You can see on the video, and this is pretty interesting, Ed picks up a striped shirt before Jeremy. It kind of says something, but it's really tough to tell because it's a, a black and white striped shirt and the lettering was in white. So what's going on there? Like, it definitely had something because Ed reacts to it and kind of laughs, but impossible for me to tell. Yeah, couldn't couldn't tell. I love when Jeremy versions are, are messed with a little bit, and this one is. And you can go to some versions. Some versions have a complete reorganization of the first chorus being left out completely. Sometimes Ed doesn't even sing in the first chorus. This one, it's omitted in this one. And it's part of like its evolutionary process, maybe even going back to some of the No Jeremy versions where they're just like, okay, what, what can we do different about this? What, what sounds different? And you know what? I really like it this way because sometimes Jeremy's chorus can end up getting repetitive, especially because of how much you've heard it and how many times they play it. You're just like, okay, Jeremy, like over and over. But you, you kind of build to that moment and you get to that great chorus when you don't do it at first, when you omit it from the first line. That's pretty good right there. Yeah, it's it's a good call to, for them to, to do that here. And this one definitely has more of a new Jeremy feel to it. But I think if you're in Wrigley Field or, or Fenway or you've got 60,000, 70,000 people, you do it traditionally. Play, play the courses, man. Hit, mm-hmm. hit the moment and let the people have their moment singing it. But for 3,000 people here, like, yeah, why not mess with it? Like, yeah. Do do something crazy. Do what you want to do. And there's there's a cool moment too where you see on the video where again we we talk about always talk about this. Everyone goes to Matt and kind of like is just kind of jamming together on Jeremy a little bit, and that was very cool. And Ed's really emphatic with some of his facial expressions during this one too. And there's a lot of hand movements, and you can tell he loves this idea and he's getting off on this and he's enjoying the reaction with the crowd. And even at the end, just gets down on the floor a little bit, builds some power before that big belt at the ending, which I thought was a very cool way to kind of build the momentum at the end. After Jeremy, you get the crowd really getting involved right here. And they're serenading the band with what can only be described first as a soccer chant. And then what you realize that it is, is a traditional Polish song called Stolot. And I could be pronouncing that wrong. And the song is supposed to be an expression of good health, good wishes, and long life to somebody that you care about. 
And also in Poland, it can be considered as a happy birthday song. So Polish knowledge for you there. And, and very close to the acronym for State of Love and Trust. Indeed it is. Yeah, it is minus an SOA, and, yeah. and you have it. Absolutely. Before playing said song, Ed, you can hear him say, I got shit, and then go right into the song. So I Got Shit is going to be packaged with Light Years and Leatherman here, and I Got Shit sounds amazing. Just the fierce growl going on, and that's another moment where Jeff is going back with Matt and, and jamming with Matt along this. And again, another Matt moment where he has a killer fill before the second verse. Top-notch version of I Got Shit. Ed is on top of his game, and then they crush it on the second turnaround on this, too. It, it's very, very good. Love this version. Yeah, these two here together might be my two favorite performances of the night. I got shit and light years work so well together. Again, they're helped by I think by being together, just like we talked about with of the girl and sleight of hand, with insignificance and grievance. These two together, you're onto something here playing those. Cause yeah, oh it's it's just perfect. Like I got shit like a great live song but it doesn't always sound like this and they were again year 2000 is the best performances of a lot of different songs for a lot of different reasons i got shit you'd be, you'd be hard pressed even going back to 95 96 to find versions like this that's not a hot take at all i think that you know that's that's perfectly suitable 98 there's some really good versions but i got shit as well so yeah that's right in the territory where this is at its best now before light years, Ed is trying to talk to the crowd and he's like trying to introduce the song. And he's like, yeah, this one is light years. And, um, uh, maybe it has a meaning to me and maybe you. And yeah, that's how it's very awkward how he introduces it, but it kind of comes back around full circle after the song ends, which is a very weird and interesting way to make it full circle. But for light years, what do you love about this song? I think what I loved about it was just tight in the pocket and sounded nearly perfect from the album version. Yes, and I think, again, the little intro just makes it so endearing because, again, you know you're not listening to someone who has, like, a pre-written speech about the song. Like, it's not, like, quote-unquote stage banter that you're going to get from a lot of stadium rock bands. He's just talking like he would talk to you if you were watching the rehearsal if he was just telling you about this new song he had written it's very vulnerable and it's very endearing and that's one reason that people gravitate towards it but light years here i mean the pink pop 2001 is is the gold standard and this one is i think right there too again it builds the tension and like that's matt cameron and i think this this one really when it's good it soars like a given to fly soars and the the two songs are related we talked about that but this one I think really soars at the end and you can really feel the extra power behind it yeah this one made me sit up and pay attention a very good performance
You know what it soars like? Puzzles and games. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's what uh, I was. That's what I was getting at. Yeah, I, I, I know. And I'm, you know, for anybody that that wasn't picking up on it, I was just. Yeah. Oh, oh, I no. love puzzles and games. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're throwing me the alley oop, and I'm just yep. I'm laying it up. So now this is where it kind of comes full circle here. Ed says, "I hate to be crass after introducing the last song, but this song is about a dead person too." Uh, okay, but not the worst. Doesn't always work. Doesn't always work. Right. (laughs) Leatherman comes out pretty hot, though. Just fired up, fun rocker. Ed's having a good time, embellishing some of the lyrics, and, you know, fast, revved up energy from start to finish. It's it's one of the better Leathermans that I've ever heard. Sure, I'll go with that. Then we get a section. These are all, like... You know, deep cuts off of their albums that don't usually get played in this time period. In Hiding, Off He Goes, Dissident. Three completely different songs that take you in different places. And In Hiding was actually the first one played that wasn't on this original set list that we've been talking about. So, you know, it does have like one or two hiccups, but it finds like a groove and intensity and does feel like one of the rarer songs in the set. All three of them feel pretty rare for the time. This is where we're starting to get into that territory here. And then in the encore, there'll be like one or two more that sort of fit that mold as well. But off he goes. Ed teased that up before that, being about friendship and being friends with an asshole and then points to him. That version, you have the downtrodden, you have the soaring and the folky versions. This I felt was very Bruce Springsteen in here. And then Dissident following up. I thought you'd just never get Dissident this late in the main set, but this is pretty standard for what Dissident was at the time. Yeah, I want to go back to In Hiding. Sure. Because I remember that being one that I, going back to like the bootlegs, you would go to Best Buy or wherever, and you would flip through them, and you would look at the set lists, and that's how you would decide. And you talked about the eight-man shows like London, Paris, this one, how do we say Atlanta, Jones Beach, Seattle, they played in hiding at all of those. And is there a trend here? Maybe. In hiding was definitely one that I looked for because that was one of my favorite ones off of Yield. And like I said, being the first one that's kind of where we're we're going off the beaten path now. We're really just making things up as we go. Ed felt really good on it. it like I said, not not perfect technically, but had a really good energy to it and I think that shows in the like the relaxed vibe of the show really helped that and I love the off he goes moment where it talks about this about friendship being friends with an asshole and then the story is you know he slowly kind of points to himself and goes you can hear going, like me I'm the asshole and you hear the people up front in the crowd go like no no no, yes. no. you know we talk about those things where he kind of like he'll, he'll go off bike for a little bit and say something that wasn't meant for everyone I just think that that's a really cool moment. This this show is full of these little like one two moments in between, and these little, the, the songs are paired up really well. So yeah, off he goes, very relaxed. Again, un- these two songs perfectly, I think, encapsulate the vibe of the show and just fit in perfectly with the whole atmosphere of it. Yeah, uh, no arguments here. Absolutely. In between, we're getting close to the end of the main set, which is twenty two songs long. Believe it or not. But Ed is tuning his guitar and says, this is the guitar tuning for the rest of America, riffs and tunes, and says, this is how we tune in Seattle. 
And a little bit of outshined, right? Did you, did you think it was I missed a little bit that. outshined? No, I, I guess I missed that. I, I knew it was sort of like drop D and lower, but I didn't yeah. I didn't catch what the riff was. I think it sounds like outshined. Yeah. You have to think a lot of these moments, too, in the set list when you go back to them. Insignificance, Grievance, Ed. Ed and Ed back to back. Oh, I got yeah. shit, Light Years, Leatherman, Ed, Ed, Ed. And then MFC Habit, Ed, Ed. So Ed's got his pieces in here, and while they're calling stuff out on the fly, they're still working within what is easiest to transition from song to song, which MFC and Habit, the point that I want to bring up with these, that this combo, now I'm going to give, I'm going to do a little trivia with you again here okay. about combinations. This combo okay. was played together so often from 1998 to 2000, basically like peanut butter and jelly. Now, the first version where they were kind of played back to back was Charlotte 96. MFC was teased a little bit for the first time that we knew of. No lyrics. It was just kind of the doom, down, 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 but that was it. And then that went into habit. How many times, including that, because that's where it's included on live footsteps, how many times has this been played back to back? Oh, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try and redeem myself. I'm gonna. I'm gonna stick with the same. I'm gonna say thirty. Thirty-one. There All right. That, that's better. That's better. good. I feel, I feel better about that now. How, how many times outside of the year two thousand? Like after two thousand? Oh. <laughs> um. Two. One. Okay. So yeah, yeah that, you, you, I can't. I don't think they went back to it very much afterwards. No. Yeah. Not a lot because hey, like the, it didn't need. They didn't need to do the guitar part after that. Right, yeah, and yeah. and most of Habit was just Ed losing his voice and kind of ruined for the rest of the set. So if you're doing a growly Ed vocal performance, go with a Blood or something like that. And Habit after 2003 just does not really sound as good. But yeah, I, I think these are these are both like really fast, driving, atmospheric in, in MFC, and then just garage rock with Cameron tearing it up again in Habit big outro on this that just feels very heavy hard hitting you still get good versions of habit during 2000 and then after that it just sort of disappears and of course other songs that are more developed towards what ed's voice became in the later stages meant that he would go and do those more than he would do habit i really like the habit break too like they they linger on it a little bit like it takes a long time to get uh-huh. to the the stop it almost just kind of like devolves into like a little free form and you can hear it like falling apart i always like those little moments and then it just kind of like tongue-in-cheek like speaking as a child of the 90s and then they they kick right back into it that's a really cool moment we're ending the set on the 22nd song here and it's alive And of course, we wouldn't know it then, but Alive is nearing the end by this point where, of course, in a couple weeks, Alive would not get to see any play in the set list for good reason until the very end of the tour, the last night of Key Arena. So here, though, I feel like they were starting to kind of be on the uptick with Alive at this point, while in 94 95 96 alive was just sort of meandering a little bit and they were kind of like oh, i don't know what the like ed saying i don't even really know what the song means anymore it doesn't mean anything to me and now it feels like with cameron because cameron is really more of an arena rock kind of 
drummer and brings that emphasis into the song. Now I think they can take those elements and really polish them up and make it sound good and everybody can feel inspired again. Uh, I can see that. Yeah, I think having him in the band definitely changed things and definitely made them a different animal than than it was with Jack. By 2000, they were starting to relax and they weren't like the anti-everything angst-ridden band of the 90s that they had been. So things were starting to fall, you know, relax a little bit. And the fans too, you know, Alive is is one that people are always going to gravitate towards. So it doesn't sound like it's not 2010's powerful celebration here, but it's fine. It's it's a main set closer. Yeah, it, it's definitely like it feels a little more energetic than it did in the, in the mid 90s. That's for sure. I'm with you. Couple takes on this at the end where he's doing the yeah, he's kind of trying to like harmonize it and switch it up with the growl. I don't think I've ever heard that before. That that was pretty unique. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I didn't catch that. And then the little things that obviously you can't hear from the bootleg, but you get on Five Horizons. Ed catches a t-shirt during a live and blindfolds his eyes throughout half the song. And Mike catches a rose. There's lots of flowers being thrown on stage and attaches it to his guitar. So little things that I'm sure the visuals live made it even better than what you think it was. So yeah, 22 songs at the main set. Classic already. We are at the Encore. Let's pause for station identification. We'll get into this quick. We'll do a little bit on Patreon. We have a couple of people to thank today. One new patron and a couple people that decided to donate to our cause as well. The new patron is Chris O'Reilly. So let's thank Chris O'Reilly. Awesome. Chris, Thanks, Chris. Through the bonus leg tier. And like I've been mentioning the last couple of weeks on the show, you don't have to pay for $1 a month. You could do the whole year of subscription. It's only $10. You're saving two bucks. So if you like to save two bucks and not have your credit card get charged again until what next April, then that's an easy way to do it. But also we had two other donors, two people that have been following along on the podcast for a very long time and they're not part of Patreon, but we really appreciate the help that they've given us. And that's Jeff Kohler and Steve Bennett. Those guys Again, big time followers of the podcast. We really appreciate their help. And now is really the time to pitch in and help us out because obviously the tours are coming up and we have tons of expenses that we have to be on the ball for. Like, look, we're going to be on Uber rides. We're going to have to be doing like carpools and need money for gas. We're going to have to go out for food. And John and I both like this is not something that we really promote, but we're both unemployed stay-at-home dads. Obviously, we'll dig into our personal funds when it's appropriate to dig into our personal funds, but the meeting for Patreon is to help out our expenses for the road and make sure that we're active at every spot that we can be at and sort of be there for you too, because there's going to be lots of content that, you know, Sacramento, Vegas, I'm going to be at both those shows. There's going to be content, but also as well, we're getting people to help out with things at some of the other shows too. And if you want to be a representative, whether you're a Patreon or not, if you want to be a representative at any of the California shows, because that's what we're going to work on now. If you want to do something, we'll send you some stickers. We'll send you some flyers to hand out. We can send you a t-shirt for helping out. And I think we're looking for ambassadors to help out on our Pearl Jam podcast community group on Facebook too. Just posting pictures and updates throughout the nights, either 
videos, set list updates, whatever have you. But we wanted to come from the person on the scene just because it's such a, a unique outlook. And obviously, you know, we haven't had this in a long time. So we want to be on the inside scope as much as possible. So if you're interested in that, hit us up. Obviously, the email live and four legs podcast at gmail.com. But most of you know that we're pretty accessible through our Facebook accounts, through Twitter, where what whatever have you. So if you want to get involved with that, just reach out. If you want to join up on Patreon, like we said, the bonus tier is the best thing to do for now. If you want to later subscribe at another tier for a larger amount, then that's up to your discretion. We appreciate all of it. But right now, if you're interested, the bonus like tier is the way to go. And definitely the $10 a year subscription. I think that that helps out everybody. So if you want to do it, patreon.com slash live on four legs or go to the Patreon app, search for live on four legs or just go to live on four legs.com. Click that become a patron button and there you are you're there we also for those that don't know we do content fresh content very often for frequently on patreon what's coming up next john we've got the next installment of the late night series we're going to be talking about the infamous letterman performance from 1996 featuring my own personal pearl jam holy grail if you want to see john sad if you want to hear I him almost sad. lose it. I almost lose it in that episode. Uh-huh. If that's not a tee up to get you to sign up, I don't know what is, but it was definitely fun. We go back to the black performance and the whole black thing that happened in 1996. If you don't know what that situation was, it, it's it's pretty great. It's pretty hilarious. And it starts the blossom of the friendship with David Letterman, too. So that's going to be out sometime pretty soon, probably, hopefully this week. And liveandfourlegs.com, stay tuned. We're going to have way more content. We're going to have a lot of stuff that's that's building to this tour. So especially very soon is going to be new Concertpedia entries for the year 2013. So keep that thought in mind. All right. I think that's all we got. Let's uh, get back into the rock right here. And as the band leaves the stage and the crowd is, is left to appreciate what is all gone on this night, Eddie chants surround the arena because of course they do. The other four are just backing Eddie and the vetters. As you all know, this is an Eddie and the vetters podcast, but Ed comes out and he says right off the bat, it's like we, we, not me, me. It's we had a meeting and we couldn't think of one reason why we shouldn't leave you. Not I, not I, not I, but we thank everybody who bought a ticket for tonight and last night appreciated so much that you could be here. We are honored. The first song they go into is one that they had only played 23 times beforehand. It had been out for four years at that point. It's a song called Smile. Criminal. 
only 23 times that it was played yeah. to that point. Like, when is the moment that people start telling the band, no, play Smile a lot more than you do. Switch up. Jeff, get on guitar. Stone, get on bass. Ed, get on harmonica. Do it more often. Get more comfortable with it because this is one that we're always attaching to. It was around this time because they played it, I think it looks like 10 times in 2000. So, and yeah, it just has to do with, you know, Jeff and Stone switching instruments and that being kind of a weird thing. And it has to, you know, which is funny because now it's common. Yeah, yeah. And Jeff probably didn't feel as comfortable on the guitar. I'm sure it was probably on the set this morning. I'm sure Ed asked him, like, hey, do you feel comfortable playing guitar tonight? Probably sometimes he said yes, probably sometimes he said no. But I, I like that they came out and did it right out of the gate to start this encore. I think that really, again, it just continues kind of the momentum from the show in a really nice way and, like, keeping the the kind of low-key, relaxed vibe of the show. Like, hey, we're going to come out switch out some instruments. You're kind of getting a behind-the-scenes look at, like, some cool things that you don't normally get to see. And, again, this is just a really fun version of Smile. Again, they don't know how to end it, so it just kind of goes on for a while and then it <laughs> stops. And, like, it's just, it's always so funny, these, these early versions. Because now, like, Jeff's gotten a little more professional on the guitar and they kind of figured out how to do it. But this early on, they really hadn't. And it's, it's really funny to kind of hear them, like, and stop at the end, which is kind of cool. I, yeah, I really like this a lot. Look, Smile is always going to be an encore song. I think it fits perfectly. It's a positive atmosphere getting back into that set that all felt very positive. You don't want to come in, especially in this moment, and do something like dark and acoustic. I don't think that really brings in the crowd as much. But Smile is the one that that can really, again, because it was so rare at the time, it's a no-code song. They did a couple of no-code songs at this show, but no-code is starting to kind of be on the downslope here where they're not doing songs from the record as much anymore especially after this year it gets lower and lower so yeah yeah smile like you said it's starting to bud into what it's becoming but i think even much later than that it becomes more popular and more utilized in in bigger situations like ballpark shows and all that smile is something that we should do for an evolution episode absolutely Ed shouts out Stone and Jeff afterwards because, again, that's, you know, doing the swap here is fun and and he appreciates them doing it. And Immortality is going to come next. And you hear that, like, little pre-Immortality jingle almost kind of sounded like Small Town was coming. I don't Hmm. know if you'd notice that at all, but, like, Small Town's on the original set list and Hmm. didn't get played. Not very many songs are. There's Better Man, there's Small Town, there is Faithful... And there's Go. And those are the only songs that were originally on the set that weren't played. Right. So I think Stone, Stone maybe looked at a set list when he wasn't supposed to. Uh, it is possible. Yeah. It is very yeah. possible. This was very funny out of the bridge. It just sort of stops.
solo's not like a scorcher solo. It, it's it's good and it progresses and it gets you to where it is, like the good sweet spot of immortality. But once it comes out of the bridge, you're so used to it immediately transitioning into that little riff, arpeggiated riff there. But it just freezes. It's a pause. It's like nothing. And then, okay, got to take a second and then go into that, which I thought it was, it was funny. I thought it was just a take on the song that, again, like a couple of songs here, they feel like they're almost going in scratch mode, almost a little bit raw. And just interesting that whether it was a mistake or not, hearing it made it feel like it was meant to be that way. Kind of the same thing as release. You know, how many times do we come on here and just gush about immortality being special? And there's there's one thing that always sticks out to me when I go back and look at Five Horizons. And I'll do this once or twice a year. I'll just go back and, and read through Five Horizons, look kind of like a story. And I, I highly recommend doing that if you haven't. There's a story here where Ed takes the cork of his wine bottle and like burns it on the swimming with like a lighter or one of the candles or something and he's he takes it and starts like rubbing it on his face and his arms i have a picture of it in my head like i can visualize like what that would look like but we don't have the video of that so i would really think that would be kind of a powerful moment because immortality the song's about and he's sitting there like covering himself like making himself black like just would be a, a crazy image like an I- iconic thing that I don't think a lot of people talk about and think about because we won't have the video for it and then the the end of immortality is just incredible like I said after after that break it really builds to a nice jam like reminiscing some of the stuff they did with Jack and we we know here again too from Five Horizons that the whole band is now lining up in front of Cameron there and you know we know what what a special moment that is and like again they're they're all just playing off each other really well again it fits perfectly with the with the atmosphere of the show and just another classic performance yeah that was the image actually going through my head before i read the caption from five horizons it just there's so many times that you just have seen it in 95 with jack or have seen it with matt where everybody's huddled around and it's like vibing off each other's energy like picking up what other p and and this is one where i guess that because the ending evolves into what it evolves into and it just keeps progressing and getting just greater and greater as it goes that the band feels like they need to feed off of each other and i feel like in this cameron of course is going off but i feel like stone's really taken if you listen to in your right ear stone is just riffing on it a little bit like he's taking the lead on this and you can hear him doing little parts while ed and mike are both like really strumming as hard as they can and feeding off that that power and energy and yeah you know i'm gonna bring this up because while you were mentioning this i didn't even realize what this was but the idea of like painting his face and arms reminds me of what mccready did for the live stream event the all in Hmm. washington that that he did where mccready was all in glow in the dark paint and was sort of like there's this vibe of maybe something different would have happened you know and unique would happen on the 2020 tour and i think for both of us when that came out we were like okay that might be what they were talking about here that this could have been a thing that was going to happen but 
we'll we'll see what 2022 brings for us. We'll see if they go back to some of the ideas that they were pitching when Gigaton first came out. But let's get on to Black and great version. Mike again relying on the binaural era effect pedal that you know comes into play a lot with oh, nothing as it seems, and it's got a really blossomed outro on it and just a pretty ending sequence, allowing for the crowd to sort of clap in unison. And and I kind of mentioned a lot with Black. There's the slow calm plane landing at the end of this where it takes you from such a a high emotional powerful moment and then while most songs they'll have that surge it's kind of the opposite it brings you right down and the crowd you can hear the crowd in this you can hear them clapping along and it is a very good moment it kind of is the precursor to what a lot of later later versions where you know you get a late we belong together or something like that where they allow for that to happen yeah another two songs paired together that work really well together like you almost can't follow up that immortality any other way than with black like this they need to go together and they're helped by being together yeah just an incredible performance here totally agree with that and now after that you can kind of be like all right we got the we got the powerful stuff we got the emotional stuff out of the way Let's play leaving here and let's mess with the crowd a little bit. It's kind of bringing you on an uptick now. And Ed starts with he's kind of doing a dun 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 dun, and he messes around with that so many so often. I I can name the song in two notes. I can name the song song in three notes. I can name the song in 184 notes. I I could probably name leaving here in one if I heard that. That's that's leaving here. You can probably name it before it fades out to commercial. Exactly. (laughs) I love when you could hear the official bootleg and not have to worry about was this mic, was this stone, and this is the order that I love the most. This is the order that it should always be in the solo section. Stone, Jeff, Ed, Mike. 100% of the time. That's my favorite. Yep, I, I like that. I like when everyone gets a chance to do it because, like, a lot of the more recent ones we've seen, like Jeff will get all of them, which is which is nice too. It's fine, yeah. but I like when when everyone gets gets a shot, and then you get to hear Ed trying to do his best to keep up with everyone else. Yeah, it's great. But you know, very rare, but there are times where Matt will do a you know a two second sure. drum solo or sure. something like that. And but yeah, when Jeff is out, I don't like when Jeff is out. And I agree with you. I don't like when it's all Jeff because then it's just like, okay, where's the pat? Like when Mike really comes through and really hits like one of those high energy solos, that's the great ending to all of this. So all of them need to be pieces because they all sound different and they all have their different styles. Ed does the same thing every time. Like that's that's what Ed does every time on this. And like we mentioned, what last week, where like, hey, when does Ed ever solo? No, that that's your Ed solo right there, essentially. Yeah. yeah so. Matt again, uh, more amazing fills and rolls on this, and is on top of his shit. And like we mentioned before, Binaural is probably Matt's best era, hands down. Soldier of Love following up on that again, like two covers back to back, the only two in the show, and it kind of happens out of nowhere. And this is the eighth version of it. We talked a couple weeks ago from the East Lansing show that it was the live debut in 1998, which they played a couple times that year, but definitely more established at this point than when they did it way back then, where they were still sort of figuring out, still pretty new to them, and you can tell during this performance, there's a lot of, you know, Ed's kind of emphasizing, and lay down there, like, he's having loads of fun. Yeah, and I love the little thing at the end where the crowd adds the little 
the outro that's on the <laughs> the record and it, right. it kind of supposedly it kind of yeah according to the five horizons again it kind of cracks that up a little bit when because they do the cha 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 at the end <laughs> and I, again i can just that's very another thing where i can just picture him like like what like being a little surprised and because that's something they never think of but the 98 single wasn't out yet 2000 obviously the single is out so people know so now we get to like what bread and butter should be and technically this is the alive spot when you're thinking like post 2006 oh we're we're burning toast right here Uh uh-huh that's that's right like you want it's not even avocado toast this is like fucking like take something from the freezer take something from the attic and like just say here you go here's lunch and Last Exit is right here, and I fucking love it. Once or twice in 95, 96, it's used as a main set or even an Encore 1 closer. And maybe for a bigger audience beyond those eras, it doesn't make much sense. But lyrically, doesn't it make so much sense to have this near the end of your show? Because especially the way that Ed changes the lyrics on this. This is, this is our last exit. Like... How perfect is that? And not only that, but the song is fucking amazing, but... It's, it's really good. Yeah, Matt's pounding the whole way through. Mike Mike has a nice, like, what I call a spiritually inspired solo there that extended oh, for a little longer than usual. Incredible solo. I, I love this. And again, I think being late in the in the set, he's warmed up. He's he's more likely to kind of go off script a little bit, and I've never heard a last exit solo like this before. It's no. really, really good. Yeah. And... This is another one too where I think when you go through and you were looking at the back of those bootlegs looking at that list, you're like, ooh, last exit right there, like I gotta hear that. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think that, that, that helped that helps sell some sell some CDs here. This is this is this is oh, last exit I am in full on agreement with you. And I think that that happens with me a lot. And I think very, especially very early on in the podcast, if I'd see things like this, that would intrigue me. And I remember there was um, the Camden 03 show where they were just like, there's fireworks going on in the background. Fuck it. We're going to do rocking in the free world mid set. I wanted to cover that show just for that. Sure. Like those things are so intriguing that they can kind of go out of their element and do that. And obviously this whole entire show is out of their element, but last exit at the end, whew, chef's kiss, let's do it. 
Now we get two to end it here. Soon forget is going to be like your in between, I suppose. And Ed's like, he says, I'm going to work a song up for you. I'm going to ask for complete silence because the instrument I'm playing on the next song is very small. Also out of tune. Ed does have a moment where he has to stop and start up again. But I think the moment where he usually gets caught up is the stiffening. He's stiffening. And this is earlier in the song. So it's quick. It's fine. The crowd seems to love it. The crowd. Yeah. That's the thing that stuck out to me is, yeah, the crowd reaction. That's one more time around. And there is not a sound. He's lying dead, clutching Benjamin's never put the money down. He's stiffening. We're all whistling. A man will soon forget You know, this is very early on in Ed doing the ukulele thing. He doesn't have a ukulele album out yet. You know of the Sleepless Nights. I, I, that's not That hasn't even happened yet, no, to be honest no. with you. The Beck Show hasn't happened. So this is really like, this is, a, this is the fifth time that they played it. So it's a different sight to see Ed with such a small instrument. And Ed's like, kind of like, what the hell do I do with this? So... The crowd is just reacting to it because, again, it feels like something so much different than you get out of a Pearl Jam show that you knew to that point. So, yeah. I've got got some trivia for you. You were hitting me with some trivia earlier. Yeah. How many times do you think they played Last Exit into Soon Forget consecutive? Oh, God. Um, Like this? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to say like three. One. It was this one. All right. One time. There is no there is no other last exit so, into into you, soon forget. So you kinda get, you kinda like tried to trick me. A little that. bit. A little yeah. Bit. All right. Whatever. That's fine. So yeah, like again that's very early on the ukulele obviously we know we understand the ukulele songs record and we understand the history and it's it's more established now, but back then still very new to people, very exciting. All right, Keely, hit the lights. What a nice night this was. Let's end it with Yellow Leadbetter. Very traditional version of Yellow Leadbetter. Slow and and feels like a thank you and a just a welcoming song at the end. And it's always a great song to leave off of. And I think for a lot of people, I've grown away from this fact, but for a lot of people, Leadbetter is the only way that you can end the night and feel satisfied and i think that at the end of all this with like all the rare songs and all the songs that were out of place i think ending it with ledbetter was the right decision yeah i agree again it's like you know like matt said there's like playing a kegger what do you do at the end of the party you send everyone home happy so that's for sure had, had to be uh, Mike adds a little bit of Van Halen at the end, dance the night away, and Ed grabs a Polaroid of the crowd, and it seems like they stay on for an extra minute or two to take it all in. The crowd's back to singing Stolot again instead of Solot, and it's just a very, very cool moment. Ledbetter at last for five minutes, but the total runtime of the song is eight, so there's a lot of extra Ed thanking them for both nights and crowd chanting, thank you, Eddie, back at him, so yeah a very very cool ending of just a a cherry on top to a show that has lived in this positive and celebrated light 
for over 20 years now. So, with that all being said, we have three songs or three moments to determine as our top three. I'm first, I suppose. So Go for it. I'll do it. I'm going to say number three is Last Exit. Great performance. And like you mentioned, I love the songs that are just out of place and feel like they can kind of emphasize and make it look better on paper. And this doesn't just look better on paper. This is better when you hear it to get at the end. Because again, that that last line, this is our last exit, makes me feel like, okay, this is where the show ends and this is a great way to end it. Look, 30 songs set to, uh, let's not just gloss over that but that's pretty impressive for the binaural era as well my number two i think is going to be sleight of hand and sleight of hand is just like in the same vein of last exit where maybe last exit would be played in three spot more than sleight of hand would be but again you just you develop the vibe very early on and and you're trying to drive for something different and it felt like even with the song that they had only played one other time that the crowd really feels it really gets into it that the band is on top of it and like i mentioned not remembering the change not recalling the plan that is the setup for everything that's happening at this show and and it's pretty perfect from that standpoint Number one is being shared by two songs. It was a combination that we talked about very early in the show. Insignificance and Grievance because these songs have so much bite together and I wish, oh God, do I wish that they would have done this more often in their history. So we're not really, there's not going to be a lot of times that we're going to ever talk about this again. So yeah, that those two moments back to back like that, oh, oh man, I, just two of the best from Binaural and not much more you can say about that. Interesting. Yeah, my number three is going to be Of the Girl. After release, I talked about how Of the Girl was kind of the moment where everyone kind of found their groove and kind of figured out what the show was going to be. And I think it really sets the tone for the rest of the main set and a very good version in addition to that. My number two is going to be Light Years. I talked about how I thought that was a very strong performance of Light Years up there among the best of all time. And I thought it really soared in a way that not a lot of songs at this show did. And my number one's Immortality. Okay, it's time for a rating. And I think everybody can get on the edge of their seats for this one because we might have a celebrated moment right here. Let's see how it turns out. Now, look, I think that there are some shows that get by on how great their set list is and get by on how great the whole entire performance of the show is. And there, there's some shows that get by and become famous and infamous based off of what the story is surrounding the show. And that's what people talk about. This is the unique case where they talk about both. This is a 10. Yeah, it's tough because... You have to to think about is this show, is it one of the, are we giving 10s because of the uniqueness of it? Because it's one of the most unique shows they've ever played. Interesting I think it's the com- I think played. it's I think it's the combination of all of the above that it's a unique show. It has a story that is memorable and it's also, you know, from a show in Poland, like you, you would think that most American fans wouldn't really pay any mind to it, but it was the most popular bootleg of the whole entire year of 2000, aside aside from maybe Vegas or Key Arena. 
And I think it's just, it's so much more important than just being a unique show with a unique set list. I, I think because of the official bootleg aspect, that it has more weight to it. If it if it wasn't a bootleg aspect, I would think that maybe this was more of the underrated, undervalued show that maybe gets a ten for for being underrated. But because this was so popular and so many people that look, we've done so many Patreon profiles with people that we talked about. Hey, did you ever collect the official boots? Did you get into those? They said, Yep, the first one that I got was Katowice. That happens almost every time we talk to somebody, and that is important enough for me to stand back and say, this is a show that deserves it. Okay. I think that a lot of the shows that that we give tends to are there because they're full of those big crowd moments, and they've big, emotional, you know, heavy, memorable, iconic shows. Like This that, is different, though. It is. It is different. And I think the thing that that sets it apart is the intangible stuff. The flowers being picked during sleight of hand, the mask and daughter, the speech before light years, the speech before off he goes, friends with the asshole where he points to himself. The, the calling out songs in the middle of songs. Yeah, the, the immortality, you know, painting his face and his arms. Deviating from the original set list. Yeah, so yeah, this is a 10. There you go. All right. Did I need to hustle you on that, or were you just working your way towards I, it? I I wasn't sure. Okay. I, I I was thinking it might. This might have been a nine point five because it doesn't have the big crowd to feed off of to get to that place that a lot of those really memorable Pearl Jam moments have. But this one has those moments just in a different way. It's like Ozzy Smith going into the Hall of Fame because he's one of the best defensive shortstop of all time. But he probably has what thirty nine home runs to his name. So there you have that. This is going to be in the class of 2022 live on four legs Pearl Jam show Hall of Fame that we will do at the end in December of 2022. So we have a couple that we've inducted so far. I think this is either three or four that we're going to go back to. So, uh, yeah, this I, yeah, I think this is actually number four. So four four inductees is, is pretty good. We had 10 last year. Let's see where we end up at the end here. All right, now I want to address what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. We want to really build into what's going to happen in May, and we want to get you some of the best moments from the locations that Pearl Jam is going to be at in that nine-day run in a couple of weeks from now. So obviously the first show of the whole bunch is going to be in San Diego. We're going to do pretty something pretty special next week. It's going to be the 2013 San Diego show, and we're going to bring on two of our favorite guests on this show, Dukes Wooters and, of course, Deborah Mercury. And they met at this show. They became friends, and what is hilarious about that is that they both became listeners and fans of the show and and then very good friends of ours separately it's not like they texted each other they said hey have you listened to this they both separately became fans and and it was just sort of this kind of synchronization sort of thing that everybody was on the same wavelength same path and we all kind of 
came to the same place. And, and we're going to listen to their story and how they met, how they became friends, and why this show is important to them. So we're very excited to have them on. And you know what? Let's kind of tee up what we're going to do the last two weeks of April as well. We're going to do a show from Phoenix. We're going to go back to the binaural tour, which is l- like late October of 2000. We're going to do a Phoenix show from there because I... That's another one. I thought that there were some interesting things in the set list that I wanted to talk about more than maybe the 2003 Phoenix show or one of the other eras Phoenix. And the reason why I didn't choose 1995 Phoenix is because Sacramento is going to end the month and we're doing Sacramento 1995. So that's the schedule. If you like it, then continue tuning in because we're not going to stop and we're just going to enjoy this the whole way through until we get to those shows happening very, very soon. Get those flights booked. Get those hotels booked. It's around the corner and it's probably starting to get pretty expensive. So if you like the show, if you're interested and and you're not subscribed on any of the podcast platforms, head over to Apple Podcasts, head over to Spotify Podcasts and Subscribe to the show, and on Apple, you can leave us a little comment, let us know what you think, rate it five stars, whatever you feel is necessary for us, and just let us know what you think, let the other fans that might be interested in the show know what you think, and at the end of it, hopefully that raises our visibility within the Pearl Jam podcast universe on either Apple or Spotify, and uh, look... Again, patreon.com slash live on four legs. Everything is right now going to our expenses for the May tour. The plan, I didn't mention this earlier, but there's a plan to do a little bit of a documentary series on each venue that we'll be at. At least I'll be at most of these, but then John will join at at the tail end of what this documentary would be later in September. So we're going to try to document a lot of stuff here and then probably put something pretty cool together. So a lot of the expenses that would go into this will help that project as well so patreon.com slash live on four legs anything that you'd like to donate contribute to the show is more than helpful for us all right that's all we got next week this was a great show by the way this was awesome i listened to this a couple times obviously and just so much fun to go back to because this is a show that i believe i probably listened to this like two or three years ago the last time and going back into it i kind of forgot that things happened and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I remember this now. And it kind of brought that like little light bulb back in my head. So that was fun to go back on that and revisit. So next week, San Diego 2013, go back to the Lightning Bolt Tour. Until then, this may be the end. We're here, not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, I miss you already. And they said it tonight, I miss you always. Yeah, that's how we do it. Look. Come back next week because we got way more in store. And the week after and the week after and the week after and the week after. We're just going to keep doing this until our podcast voice run out. But we'll see you next week. I'll meet you after the show. Thanks for both nights. It's great. And uh,
You're welcome. Thanks a lot. Love you. Good night. Goodbye.